Digital greetings and a warm analog welcome to you. I am the Critical Android, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Fan Expisodes, the podcast. This is the kind of a continuation spin-off of the Fan Expo podcast, where instead of doing a bunch of different topics, we bunker down and we focus on one thing, and we just discuss that as kind of like a interstitial thing between bigger episodes. And joining me is a voice that should be familiar to you from previous episodes. It's Mr. Jedi Jacobus. Hey guys, how you doing? Well, I'm doing well. How are you doing, good sir? I was talking to the audience, but I guess I'll ask how you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Hopefully, uh, I'm doing well. We'll see how the rest of the podcast goes after that horrible throwing of shade at me. Why would you do <laughs> such an awful thing? Uh, you know, got to keep things on the toes and subvert expectations, just like the man behind the topic of today's podcast. Yes, a man who certainly did just go ahead and blow the roof off of all kinds of expectations and what television was capable of at the time. Because we're going to be talking about Mr. Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone. And one of the reasons we want to touch upon this is that we do have a revival of The Twilight Zone that'll be coming up. For those of you who saw the Super Bowl, there was an advertisement for it. It's going to be on CBS All Access. As of right now, it's listed as premiering as April 1st, 2019, hosted by Jordan Peele. Now, the selection of Peele makes sense given the popularity of the horror movie he recently directed, Get Out which kind of incorporated some elements of what you would have seen in The Twilight Zone with a kind of twist and the political and social commentary that's inherent within it. Uh, but we'll talk more about that as we discuss Serling himself. In general, this revival that's coming up has a lot to live up to, largely because of who Serling was, what his experiences were, his very hands-on approach to making The Twilight Zone, and the creative mind that he was. You're hearing this from people who, from two people who are writers. And I think we can both agree that the writing that this man put out into the world is right up there with some of the best of popular science fiction writers. Like, if you name any of them, uh, you could put Serling's name alongside them for even if he didn't write, like, the novels that they did, like Clark did or Bradbury did. Serling's scripts, even though he didn't focus primarily, uh, entirely on sci-fi, are some of the best pieces of television writing you will ever see. No, I, I would absolutely agree. Those two writers you mentioned have science fiction stories that could have easily been an episode of, of The Twilight Zone. You know, I, I think of Ray Bradbury's The Pedestrian. And that's the one thing that he got, I think, better than anybody when bringing, not necessarily science fiction, but abnormal fiction, we'll call it, to the television medium is... It's not just subverting expectations or twists for the sake of twists. It was reminding people that the reason we're drawn to fiction is because these are stories about people, regardless of time or place, that are just like us and just as vulnerable as we are at any given time. There was a heavy emphasis that was placed on the characterization of the protagonists, whether they be good people, flawed people, or sometimes bad people. And a lot of them could turn out to be morality plays. The thing about The Twilight Zone more so than anything is that if Serling was trying to prove a point, he wouldn't just do it by belaboring the issue and just throwing it at you and telling you something like racism is bad. He would find a way to code it in a way that had the story hit you where it didn't see it coming. That is so much more effective in writing when you can not mask necessarily the point of your writing, but give it kind of a glossy sheen that makes it look new and polished, but when a person actually looks at it, 
they see some sort of like age old or commonplace wisdom that was placed inside of it. To Serling's credit, I guess he knew at the time that since this was such a remarkable thing for television, the audience might not get it. So he had to have some sort of a, an ending narration to push that point home a little bit further just in case. But if you were receptive, you, you would get it before he had to tell you it. Absolutely. And and his usage of narration was great, going back to what you're saying about being almost in line with classical storytellers that we think of. The narrator was never ham-fisted. He was always used in the right way, relatively objective, but still had character all his own. And the great thing about the way he narrated was if you didn't get it, it filled you in on what you missed. But if you did get it, it was just punctuation at the end of the sentence. He had that great balance of narration and exposition without accidentally pandering to part of his audience. Twilight Zone, for for those who don't know, ran from 1959 to 1964. So this is an age where television was very much in its infancy. You wouldn't see it get into its adolescence until the later 60s and into the 70s. Uh, so this is where the genres were starting to be pushed a little bit more, more so than you would have seen you know, 10 years before that. It's actually a time where explore, exploration could be dangerous to both you and your producers and any, anyone involved in the network, because advertisers were even more heavily tied into programs back then or than they are today. And that's where the, the soap operas came from, is because literally they were being sponsored entirely by companies like Procter & Gamble and and other companies that made these products. So they were very much tied into it. And for Serling to be able to do the things that he was doing in the Twilight Zone for the time, they gave him full creative control, and he certainly did not, you know, squander that right. That's not something that normally is given to people, and he didn't take that for granted. Across those five seasons that it ran for, there were 156 episodes, which is another interesting piece of how television has changed, because today, the most you'll see for a series might be 24 episodes. But a lot of shows have gone to more of a, a 12 or 10 episode season in order to kind of rein things in budget-wise and storytelling-wise. Back then, it was commonplace for a season of a television show to have 30-something episodes. And yeah, if you average this out, it comes out to about 31 episodes a season. That just also goes to show the prodigious output of the time, too, of these people and what they were able to churn out. Well, what's even impressive about that is... I can't remember the exact figure, but even at the time, for as much as they were able to pump out, it was still unheard of where he wrote the equivalent of three seasons worth of that five-season show himself. I want to say the number was, what, 92 or something something like that? Yeah, I actually did some numbers here, and just to put it in comparison, for example, a lot of people would know Joss Whedon as the creator of Buffy, Angel, Firefly, several other shows. And people know, who know Whedon's work, how very invested he is into that work. If it's a Joss Whedon show... It carries his name and his signature style. But out of the 144 episodes of Buffy, Whedon only had writing or co-writing credit for 27 of them. Again, this is a man who's a very creative force in the industry when it, when it comes to his programs to only write 27. Um, Serling, like you said, wrote about 92 of them, and that's either writing, co-writing, or adapting them from other screenplays like that he had permission to, but had to work into a Twilight Zone episode. So 92, the only other person who comes close to doing that kind of output is David E. Kelly, who created the shows Pick Offenses, The Practice, Boston Legal, Ally McBeal, so on. So to put it that way, for him, David E. Kelly, there were 112 episodes of Ally McBeal, 
He wrote 111 of them. That That's the extreme end, but even compared to Kelly's, like, insanity, the fact that Serling wrote a full 92 of the 156 episodes was unheard of for the time, and it's unheard of today to be doing that much work on a show. And, of course, he was also the executive producer. And for those who don't know much about television, an executive producer can have more sway over things than say, an executive producer in a film would. But it depends on how much creative control they want to exert. Just to give another example, DC Animated Universe of Batman, Batman Beyond, Superman. Bruce Timm was the executive producer of all of that. And even though he didn't have a lot of the writing credits, he was very much invested in making sure that the show ran and had a cohesive theme and the characters kind of stayed on character from episode to episode. But Serling was one of those people who was very invested into it. And like you said, that kind of output for a writer, 92 of the 156 episodes, is staggering. What's what's interesting about that is nothing against Mr. Kelly and, and his work on Ally McBeal, but each of those episodes, too, were self-contained stories. Yes. Honestly, writing 111 out of 112 episodes is a feat that should not be taken away from this man, and by no means <laughs> am I doing that. But Rod Serling essentially created 92 unique universes, 92 unique stories, 92 unique casts of characters in that five-year span. And th- that's why uh, it was his wife went, I think his, I think it was a, an interview with his wife when he was talking, she was talking about how, or no, actually, I think it was him first person talking, but how just demanding writing is. He, he called writing a demanding and selfish profession. And because it is so demanding and selfish, he said he never he, he never chose it. He never dreamed it. Uh, or, or I can't remember exactly how he wrote it, but he succumbed to it. That's the best way to describe what he did and what any writer does. And I think unless you do succumb to it and realize this is my life now, you're just not going to produce the way he did. It was it was his life. And that's how he saw it, for better or for worse. That's 100% correct. And I, I like what you said about creating those different little universes with each story. Because that's entirely true. Each thing that he wrote had to have a unique bend because that's uh, the point of an anthology series that doesn't carry over from week to week to week with a recurring uh, storyline or an, an overarching narrative. Each one of these has to be a self-contained story with a beginning, middle, and an end with different characters. And he managed to accomplish that in a way that I, I don't even know who to compare it to. I mean, Stephen King does something similar in terms of the, the tremendous output of novels that he's done. But even he would have to look at Serling's work and just get, give like one of those claps where it's just like, I, I don't know how you do it, but goddamn. But even then, with, with Stephen King, you know, he has admitted that for the most part, he's writing in the same universe. That's true. Very true. You know, so he doesn't have to completely change the, the rules. He doesn't have to change the laws of physics to his storytelling, if you will. For the episodes that Serling didn't write, he was still there. As an executive producer, and hell, he was still doing the opening and closing narration, so he was part of the episode for that, too. It's funny how, for somebody who, you know, was mostly, like, the the creator of the series, it, it's funny how his narrations are so iconic that one of the first things that you think about when you hear Twilight Zone is you think of Serling, and you see his face, and you you know the narration and the quality of his voice and the way that he delivers it. And it's not one of those things that's very common to find when you think of a a creator who is that attached to a show, where when you hear the name of the show, boom, instantly the creator pops into your head. Oh, yeah. He died 12 years before I was born. 
I don't remember a time where I didn't associate him and his voice with that show, with that sort of motif. I mean, I was probably three years old and could tell you who Rod Serling was by just that opening to the show. We'll discuss more about some of the imitators of the Twilight Zone as we continue forward. But Serling himself was a very interesting man. And the more you find out about his backstory and his life, the more some of his writings and his sociopolitical commentary makes a lot of sense. And I'll start by noting, because this is very close to my heart, is that Serling was born in central New York, in Syracuse, to be specific. I'm not that far away from Syracuse. I'm about an hour away. Uh, actually, less than that, about only 30 minutes away. For those who don't know about New York, it, it's kind of a hard a hard way to explain this, because when people hear New York, a lot of the people think New York City. And if you don't know about the area, you don't realize that most of New York State is actually farmland and, like, very open fields. And you know, we have some mountain ranges like... Uh, the Catskills and the Adirondacks. Uh, and there's a lot of places here you wouldn't think of when you think of New York. And that goes towards the people, too. Because when you think of New York, you think, okay, big city, it's more liberal. But New York State in general, specifically the area that I am and where Serling grew up in, is very much a conservative kind of area. It's the kind of place that votes conservative all the time. You even see, for some reason, Confederate flags flying outside of people's homes. It's like, you realize that we were never part of the Confederacy. You're in central New York. That's the kind of area this is. And Serling, even though he was born in Syracuse, he would later move to uh, Binghamton, which is another uh, city that's very well known around these parts. And to grow up in that kind of environment, he would have seen, even if it wasn't blatant racism like you could see at the time more down south, you would still see it in New York, plenty, to the point where if you grew up with a love and respect and tolerance for people and their differences, it would make you sick to your stomach to see the kind of racism that would be prevalent on a daily basis uh, around central New York. Quality over quantity sort of thing up there, because so many Northerners, especially during the time where it became blatant, you know, with Jim Crow laws and then later the Civil Rights Movement, you know, decades later... They kind of came at it from a, from a standpoint of, oh, that's happening in that part of the country. It doesn't happen here. So when it did, there was a blind eye. There wasn't, there wasn't any attention to it. About the same time Serling was born, you know, H.L. Mencken famously wrote about a lynching that occurred in the town square of Baltimore, of all places, where the mayor didn't say anything. The authorities did nothing to stop it. He was one of the few newspaper writers to even call it out because that area of the country just kind of turned a, a blind eye to that sort of thing because it was something that didn't happen here. And for somebody like Serling to pick up on it, and then you look at his work that would come out later and see how heavily influenced uh, it was by by the politics of race, it, it makes sense that this is a person who would grow up seeing this kind of stuff, and that's why he'd be writing about it. One of the other major themes that was recurring in The Twilight Zone revolved around military conflict. Uh, there's an excellent episode with Elizabeth Montgomery that centers around the idea of people from warring nations meeting each other, not really knowing who each other are, but having to survive together. And there's other recurring themes of violence, nuclear war, things like that. And Serling had a pretty, fairly astounding military career. He was a paratrooper. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear paratrooper during World War II, they think 82nd Airborne or 101st. And he was part of the 11th which saw action out in the Pacific, which actually I found interesting when I, when I was 
brushing up on my, my Sterlingology that he was actually disappointed because he wanted to fight Germans because he actually wanted to, quote-unquote, fight Hitler. <laughs> uh, and so going over to the Pacific was kind of Dowson's dreams of his a little bit because I, I don't know if, if folks out there know, but he was actually born to a Jewish-American family. So the idea and prospect of fighting Hitler was probably fairly appealing because, well, I don't think they knew at the time the extent of what was going on in Germany. They knew Germans did not like Jews, and that was enough for them. So he kind of missed his opportunity there. And what I found fascinating, though, was he, for as, as piss and vinegar as he was to go into that, uh, by all accounts, one of his sergeants actually said that he wasn't fit to be a field soldier. During the Battle of Leyte, he actually, they said during one of the days, actually never loaded a magazine once and frequently got in trouble for wandering off and exploring in the middle of a war zone. Uh, among the medals that he earned, uh, Bronze Star Medal, Purple Heart, and because he wasn't on the German front, as you were mentioning, but he was over in the Oceanic Front, he got the Philippine Liberation Medal. And even if he wasn't uh, one of the best soldiers, the fact that he was there and seeing these things, it just goes to show how dedicated he was to the cause. And that says a lot about people at that time anyway. Oh, absolutely. Famously, he enlisted the day after he graduated from high school. He, despite people telling him he should go to college, I, I think one of his friends at the newspaper he was he was working with during high school said wars end, but degrees and careers last forever, thought he was shooting himself in the foot for it. Yeah, obviously he made it out of there. Uh, unfortunately, for those who also are unaware, Serling died fairly young. He was only 50 years old when he passed away. Died actually during heart surgery. For those who remember Serling and his openings for Twilight Zone, you can often picture him with a cigarette, and he was a very heavy smoker, which certainly doesn't help when it comes to cardiac problems. But after the war, he turned to writing, and one of the first things that was a major accomplishment for him. Uh, he did other things before television. He worked in radio, too. But the, the biggest achievement moving forward with his career after the war would have been the script that he wrote for Requiem for a Heavyweight. Serling had, you know, been a boxer, even if it wasn't a very successful one. But he, he knew the experience of what it was like to be in the ring with somebody. And there's there's something about boxing that I don't, I don't think a lot of people really appreciate in the sense that it's a very raw and intense projection of oneself to go into the boxing ring. The the idea of having to confront another person and bear your strength, it's not an easy thing. And a lot of fighters turn to fighting because of desperation, feeling like there was nothing else like left in their life. So for Sterling to be able to go in there and, and do this, it's a very, like I said, it's a very intense and raw sport. And he captured that in Requiem for a Heavyweight. Uh, it was not only originally a television property, but it was later turned into a film. But he won an Emmy for the televised version of it for when he wrote it for uh, the show... Playhouse 90. Yes, Playhouse 90. Which in itself would be a wonderful series to talk about at some point in time, because it was also one of those things that really pushed the boundaries of television with how it tried to incorporate productions, uh, both kind of live and taped, and tell these stories. Serling was able to you know, start with that and then move forward. Just goes a lot to show where his pedigree in terms of television writing started and why he was able to get the creative freedom that he got for Twilight Zone that would normally not be afforded to somebody. 
that also came from his military career. He was a boxer in the army and he, that's how they got rid of aggression. So you, you have all these soldiers getting together and that's their outlet. It's going to be more raw than it otherwise would be. So I, I think that's, that's also why he was able to capture that so well and how that was really his, his big piece before Twilight Zone was he brought pretty much every emotion he'd felt up to that point and just threw it on the script. I want to make a correction here that with Serling, he didn't die on the table. He actually suffered what would be a fatal heart attack in the middle of his heart procedure, which caused him to die two days later, which is just kind of some sort of awful irony to have a heart attack during your open heart surgery. But then again, it also kind of makes sense, too, that placed under that strain, something like that would happen. His, his life was cut very short. And you would think the fact that he was a he used to test parachutes while he was in the military. And if you could survive <laughs> testing parachutes, which sounds like the worst job ever. Well, he even paid for from what I was reading, he, he paid for part of his wedding uh, by testing parachutes, including a jet ejection seat that killed the three previous testers. Yeah, that's not a good start. You don't even have third times a charm on your side. I don't know why you would. <laughs> oh, I'll be number four thousand dollars. But then again, a thousand dollars in nineteen fifty. Oh my that's, goodness. That's, that's not too bad. You know, he survived all those uh, just to be taken down by cigarettes and, and heart problems. He dedicated like that last part of his life, not knowing that it was the last part of his life. He had dedicated a lot of it to teaching. And when I went to college in Ithaca, we had the archives there of like everything because Ithaca College was where he was very much attached to. It was teaching until like the last years of his life. And we have his Emmys sitting there in the communications building. Uh, we have all, like, the, the original footage of Twilight Zone that's been donated to us. It's a huge thing for, for Ithaca to have that living, almost living piece of Serling, so to say. His legacy is, like, right there for the students. It's a fantastic thing. Like, And for people who go to a film school, like, studying... The Twilight Zone should be mandatory anyway for seeing what it did. But then to have like the actual resources right there is mind-blowing. And I would have loved to have just sat at one of his lectures and listened to him talk about the writing process. That would have been a dream come true. He really revolutionized that field. It's, it's interesting to see how he's remembered and what his legacy has become even outside of just television. You know, you have people who sit there and his prose was admittedly not his best work. But a lot of it got published and is still looked at because what he got wrong, he got wrong. But what he got right was, in my opinion, one of the most important parts. Uh, it was that human element. Every character that showed up was human. And that is the essence of writing fiction is the human condition. Every story is just retelling the story of the human condition in one way or another. That's what separates a good story from a bad story is when you're reading a bad story, suddenly you find yourself not reading about a human or reading something that's a not human. It's a caricature. And he had a knack for putting people in some of the most absurd situations, yet reminding you that they're human. I mean, everything from everything to William Shatner in a plane screaming about a gremlin on the way was human. He was able to tap into a very realistic fear. That that fear of flying, that fear of the unknown, that fear of seeing something that that you can't comprehend, even for its time, you know, that, that's not something that would have been completely foreign to people, those fears. And even today, it still holds true. Well, even, even more than that in that particular episode, what I loved is 
it's it's really a, a story about not so much like we laugh at the the absurdity of a gremlin on the wing tearing it apart, but what it is is it's really tapping into that fear we have of an inexplicable fear. It's a it's a story about anxiety where we all just get that tightness in our chest. We don't know why we're afraid, and we can't explain it to everybody. And people who don't know why you're afraid think you're nuts. Yet you feel it. It's very real. And you hate yourself because you can't explain why it's real. He told one of the earliest stories about mental illness on television, essentially, with William Shatner and a gremlin on a wing. That even goes a bit further in the remake, or not not so much the remake, but the movie that they did of The Twilight Zone where they remade that story, Mm -hmm. replacing Shatner with John Lithgow. And that performance as well also highlights the anxiety because he admits to being a very nervous flyer and how much anxiety it causes him. So he's dealing with a very real mental illness. And whereas Shatner can be a little bit ham-fisted, obviously, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that's a shock to anybody. Uh, that performance by Lithgow is right up there in terms of that not quite over the top, but emphatic expression of what this character is going through. And that's why that segment holds up so well when it was directed like that uh, for the for the film, because uh, the character is given this very strong motivation from Serling's writing, and they're just able to take it from there with ease. If you don't have that solid foundation of the writing, then what is the actor going to work off of? No, exactly. He knew how to build a universe around his characters and around his actors. There's a clip when I was when I was looking up all this stuff throughout the week. You can't not go on YouTube and just search for Rod Serling and see what comes up to just listen to the man talk. And one of the videos I found was actually where one of his opening narrations visibly rattled the actors, not the characters, the actors. And I think that was just amazing. It was it was a story about the sun or the earth getting closer and closer to the sun. And you could just see the fear coming across these people and I don't care who you are, Nobody's that good of an actor, especially somebody on CBS in 1969. <laughs> so he just he had that way about him where he could he could crawl inside your brain and pull out something you didn't know was there and present it through absurdity or or hyperbole and still make you just as afraid of it. Along with the Twilight Zone, a lot of people forget, and I even forgot until uh not too long ago, and it's one of the reasons why I want to continue with doing this, even before the announcement or the advertisement for the Twilight Zone remake. Sterling had another show after Twilight Zone ended. Uh, and I, I don't know, if people know it, and you know what it is, write it here in the comment section before I say the name, because I'd be very interested to see if other people are familiar with what this show was. I knew it by name only. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if some people would know it even by the name. But... I'll give you a minute to try it, and we'll go forward. The show was called Night Gallery. It only ran for, I think, three seasons, and it only had like 40 or or so episodes. And he didn't have the same kind of creative freedom given to him uh, for it. But it was also kind of a different format, where instead of one story being told across half an hour, the episodes for this were originally an hour long, and they consisted of different stories being told. For instance... You might have uh, two stories an episode, three stories for an episode, so on and so forth. And that creates kind of a, a unique dynamic, different enough from what he had done in Twilight Zone to make it a unique entity. But ultimately, it just didn't 
didn't last long because the network didn't much care for it, and NBC ended up killing it after the third season, where not only was it uh, shifted from its uh, regular airing time, but also cut down from an hour to half an hour, so he didn't have room enough for the storytelling that they were used to. And from what I understand, too, he he actually kind of backed off that project a little bit himself. I know they tried to inject comedic relief into it, and he hated that. You know, and the network just, like you said, they, they didn't like it. But rather than saying they didn't like it, they kept trying to change it. He was, I don't want to say jaded by it, but he definitely not afforded the opportunity to treat it with the love he treated Twilight Zone. This also goes to show with the way that Serling was able to approach it, in that I don't know if he was tapped out as a writer at that point in time or what. This was more of an homage to some of the stories that he had enjoyed and had uh, kind of inspired him, because most of the Night Gallery episodes were based on short stories by other people, including like H.P. Lovecraft. I can't remember if Bradbury was one of them. I know Brad, one of Bradbury's stories was adapted into a Twilight Zone episode. I want to say Bradbury was in Night Gallery, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but either way, it was people like that that were heavily pushed to the forefront. Uh, and that, you know, these were storytellers that most people would know who are in that kind of like horror genre and who appreciate it. But yeah, he was just able to go ahead and take some of these and help adapt them along with his team of writers. Uh, and it does create a very different feel. For, if you ever watch a Night Gallery episode, they are far different than The Twilight Zone is. And that's not like a good different or a bad different. It's just a different. Yeah. Some people, I, I decided to, while you were talking, see if I could find any kind of Ray Bradbury Night Gallery link. And it seems even if it's cosmetic only, people are drawing to those two types of storytelling as well, showing that they kind of fit together. But different ones is the story that a lot of people reference. And it looks like people say there's a lot pulled from Fahrenheit 451 in that one. Moving away from the television shows he directly worked on, Serling's influence was so substantial that we saw so many things come off of it. Like, I, I think the, the if I were to name... Okay, let's put it this way. If I were to ask you to name a show that's like The Twilight Zone, but not The Twilight Zone, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Do you want the answer I would have given 10 years ago or the answer I give now? I'll do both. What's the answer from 10 years ago? That would have been The Outer Limits. There, that's the first one that comes to mind for me, because it was near the same time period, a similar aesthetic, different enough in that it was largely more science fiction and not as... they they weren't as many morality plays as you would find in the Twilight Zone. I don't want to say that Serling used the Twilight Zone as a soapbox, because he didn't. He used it for storytelling. If you look at it from another way, he was very much trying to present his ideals and his ideology through these stories. Uh, you didn't see that nearly as much with The Outer Limits. No, Outer Limits was trying to be kitschy for the sake of itself. Right, it was genre programming. Yeah, exactly. Genre programming. There was, I mean, there, there was still the commentary that exists in all, like we, like I said earlier, abnormal fiction, but it wasn't the same. It was, it was definitely very, I don't want to say bargain brand, because in its own right, The Outer Limits did stuff very well, and some of its stories are absolutely immortal. Yes. But it was, I would say it lacked that finesse, almost that je ne sais quoi that the Twilight Zone had. Yeah, and I think that you can accredit it to the difference between a Serling product and a non-Serling product. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that just because Serling's not involved doesn't mean it's not going to be quality, but having that creative force behind it is going to inject a little something that isn't going to be there otherwise, and that's what The Outer Limits basically is. 
still a solid program and just one of many imitators that would, would come to follow. Uh, and like, I think I know where you're going to be going with this one, but if you were to answer that question about a Twilight Zone kind of, not imitator because that's not a fair word to use, but something heavily influenced by the Twilight Zone today, it would be. I, was, I would actually call it a successor or spiritual successor, if you will, but Black Mirror. Right. And that's, I think, what a lot of people would say today. Uh, but that one has its own thematic influence to it, too, that it's very much tied to technology. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I think that's why it, it serves as a spiritual successor, because, yes, it's telling strange, unique, intriguing stories, but it's doing so with, again, a message, not a ham-fisted message, not one with a narrator saying, drugs are bad, okay, uh, <laughs> but one that is ingrained in the storytelling itself and still somehow manages to touch upon other issues that come up you know privacy uh, what we want to share false faces what is considered moral and what's not in many cases things of that nature i honestly think rod serling would be proud to see it oh i think so too uh, largely because of like what you said the way that it carries its theming and what it tries to present with or the dangers inherent in the stories that it's presenting in, in this case, being what technology is capable of, and like you said, privacy concerns too. And there's a wonderful Twilight Zone episode called The Obsolete Man that talks about basically a large, overpowering government that renders people and decides that they are obsolete and sentences them to death. Technology is, is a heavy part of that as technology has marched forward. And the idea of a government having that kind of power over people is something that does tie into the surveillance aspect and the privacy aspects that Black Mirror brings up. No, absolutely. Bla Black Mirror does what Twilight Zone did in, in its episodes where it forced you to look at yourself and question whether or not you were the monster in your own horror story or something that you willingly brought into your life is the monster in the horror story. Other things that came forward from Twilight Zone, you had Tales from the Dark Side, which was mm. created by George Romero. Uh, you also had, hell, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yeah. All of them doing their own take on that anthology series, like you said. You can't mention one of them without mentioning Serling. And even ones that had more of a centralized figure, like there was even a Ray Bradbury theater that was on HBO. Which is ironic, considering Ray Bradbury and Serling were at odds over whether or not Serling was taking imitative liberties with Bradbury's work. <laughs> even then, like when I talk about these big figures... But Steven Spielberg had his own anthology series that wasn't always horror, uh, kind of more fantasy, I guess. But he had amazing stories that ran for two seasons. And again, you can just think of that and be like, oh, well, it's, uh, it's uh, Spielberg's take on Twilight Zone, really. So it all goes back to what Serling had created. Enough to where this is, this is actually not the first Twilight Zone revival that we've had. There's been two others previously... One in 1985 that was uh, successful successful enough. It ran for, I think, three years and had around 60 episodes. So for it to actually accomplish something, you know, that, that's nothing to shake a stick at. It's still not a tremendous run, but it's not awful. And they did redo some older Twilight Zone episodes in that. And then there was a far less successful run back in 2002 that was hosted by Forrest Whitaker, why Forrest Whitaker? I do not know. That ran, I think it was on UPN of all channels. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, it was right before UPN's tailspin into becoming the CW. Yeah. So its timing was not the best. 
No, it, it definitely was not. And not that UPN was the show to begin with. <laughs> UPN. There's a story for another day. Yeah. Um, but that one was notable for having a continued story from. There's a very classic episode of The Twilight Zone uh, called It's a Good Life. It's the one with the kid who can send people out to the, quote, cornfield uh, using the power of his mind, and he can, like, shape reality. Mm -hmm. And that version of Twilight Zone had a sequel called It's Still a Good Life, where they actually got the original actor, Bill Mummy, to play an older version of himself who now has a young daughter who also has these incredible mental powers, even more powerful than his own. So if there's one thing notable about that, that version of Twilight Zone, is that they were able to do a little continuation there, but... I remember watching it when it was on, and it's like, yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't like the original. This isn't quite as good. I never watched the second iteration, but I did catch an episode of the UPN one, and I know you can't really judge anything off one episode unless it's a dumpster fire, which admittedly, the UPN one was not dumpster fire quality. No. It still, it was still entertaining. It still had its thing, but again, it was it was very much, you felt like something was lacking, and... The reason I only caught one episode wasn't because it was bad, but because it was forgettable. And I remember watching it and saying, okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to have to remember to watch some more. And much to UPN, their marketing scheme, barely advertising and all of that. But also, like I said, it's forgettability. I literally forgot to watch it. They also did a very kind of odd production with it in that they had a 44-episode season but they would air the episodes, two episodes back-to-back. I don't really understand that one. But whatever, it is what it is. It still, unfortunately, failed. But we'll have to see what this new one does. You know, as much as I I appreciate Jordan Peele, I want people to remember to take a, a step back here for a moment and realize that we don't know how much of an influence he's going to have on the show. We know that he's an executive producer and the host, but that doesn't mean he's going to be writing these things. He's got a Hollywood career going on. So if you're expecting get-out levels of quality from an episode-to-episode basis, that might be a foolhardy assumption to make. It's it's going to be interesting to find out who they're able to tap to get to write these episodes. But just because Peel's name is attached to it, doesn't mean you're going to have the sharp, witty, socially conscious writing that you would expect from Peel. Yeah, like, like you said, you know, in your explanation of what an executive producer is, hopefully that comes through. We, we can't judge it before we've seen it, though. We have right. to be careful with that. And honestly, Jordan Peel, he, he's good and he's an artist. I, I don't think he's going to attach his name to just anything. So that, that right there should be much more of an endorsement than the previous two uh, rotations, if you will. And I think the fact that they're they're banking on it so hard that they would pay for Super Bowl spot, you know, shows shows another thing. But the only concern I really have is that it's not going to be drawing on the successes of its of its forebear. It's going to be drawing on the successes of Black Mirror, and we're going to be seeing something meant to compete with that as opposed to something to do homage to the source material. That is a very realistic concern, because as we know full well from other discussions that we've had on podcasts, people love to follow trends as creators. Networks love it. Uh, Other creators have a tendency to do it. And you see it in every kind of medium. You see it in web series where people were trying to emulate Marble Hornets uh, after that came out. We had a big discussion about that on one of our podcasts. And I think it would be absolutely tragically ironic 
if that's what killed this version of it because it was that corporate and studio mandate that led to the creation of the Twilight Zone to begin with. The fact that Serling said no more. He hated the fact that Requiem was even edited to ditch lines because it was sponsored by lighters and the people who were smoking weren't allowed to use matches. Right. So that's why he created Twilight Zone. So it would be terrible to see Twilight Zone die because of corporate sponsor involvement. Yeah, let's hope that that doesn't happen. But like I was saying, too, we, we just see these trends, and I can see it being all too possibly real that it gets lumped into trying to be a Black Mirror imitator. And let's just hope to God that does not happen. Not even hope to God, hope to Serling it doesn't happen. But even beyond that, too. Oh, you could say hope to Rod. But no, uh, <laughs> beyond that, though, I, I hope the public is also receptive to that because not a lot of people these days can say they've watched classic Twilight Zone episodes. And that's not me saying, you know, trying to be snobbish, like only real fan. No, nothing like that at all. I mean, of of those 150 some odd episodes, I've only seen, you know, handfuls comparatively. My big concern, though, is, is, is that people aren't going to be looking for the Twilight Zone. They're going to be looking for Black Mirror, and that's going to poison them to what could maybe be a great successor, which could be something that was worthy of Serling's name. So it's, it's not just corporate involvement trying to make it into black mirror but i think it's also viewers trying to mentally turn it into black mirror yeah that could very easily happen too and that's why i also don't want people to you know get into this thinking that they're going to get what they got out of jordan peele's other works because that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily what you're going to find Uh, because as we noted before serling's work ethic towards his television show was ridiculous it was beyond the scope of what most people would ever do for working on a television project. And with Peel having, uh, he's got another film coming out, and his demand in the industry to be able to, you know, continue to create, that's not gonna, it's not gonna leave him time to work on the show to the, to the extent that Serling did. And I don't want people to dive into this thinking that they're going to get that quality, or like you said, thinking that they're gonna get something similar to Black Mirror. You have to go into it with without expectation and just hope that it lives up to the Twilight Zone name in what that show was capable of. And the fact that because the Twilight Zone spoke to such primal fears in us and societal fears that are still prevalent today, scarily so, that it could easily still work if the writers treat this with the love and care that it deserves. Because as we found out full well over the last couple of years... Race problems are still very much alive. Nuclear war concerns are still very much alive. Military conflict is still very much a concern. And those are three major things that happened in the Twilight Zone on a regular basis back in the 50s and 60s. We've entered the 60s, which we're copying the 20s, which we're copying the 1880s. You know, it's just every, every 40 years or so, we just decide, you know what? Let's go pull out the old home movies. And with that, you know, we see a lot of the satire and commentary of those times come back into relevance, and we see a lot of a lot of what what became popular come back into re- relevance. So, who knows? Maybe it will find an audience. Because really, I, I was thinking about it earlier. That's what made Serling so so famous was you know that that path from the fifties to the sixties was a bumpy one. Fifties mm-hmm. were this idyllic time, whereas the sixties. Well, we started to look a little rough around the edges, and especially when we looked in the mirror and saw the five o'clock shadow, you know, it, it was not pretty. In a time where people were used to happy endings always coming at the end of a 30-minute television block, 
Sterling was like, mm, no, not so much. And that's really where the pioneering came from. Was it, you know, it may not have been a, a dreary ending, but it certainly wasn't a happy ending. And definitely not even close to every time was it a happy ending. Oh, God. And no. it was because the 60s were a time when American hopelessness started to become a thought again. And, and here we are again. And we, we have that. But unfortunately, back in the 60s, we had three television networks. Now, we have those ideas coming back and forth and getting pounded into us. Even if Peels is the best show on the market for it, I'm honestly afraid there's also some genre fatigue with, here's a twist. Here's something postmodern and dreary. Here's something subverting your expectations. You know, it's kind of like, we get it, you're edgy. And I am also afraid Twilight Zone is going to fall into that. There is that unfortunate possibility, but... At the very least, we will always have the original series to look back on and enjoy. And I think in order to close things out here, let's toss out a couple of our favorite episodes. What ones come to your mind? I've already, like I said, honestly, the Gremlin one. <laughs> like that, <laughs> that I know it's a classic and it's cliche to answer, but I think the reason so many people say it's it's their favorite is because it is one of the best. But when it came to just uh, you know story elements of of things like like i said i mentioned um the uh what's it called the ideas that he came up with like the 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 earth rotating slowly closer and closer to the sun which again commentary on nuclear fallout or nuclear war you know we're not afraid the earth's going to come closer to the sun We're, we're worried that we're getting ever closer to midnight and there's nothing we can do about it. In fact, he even starts the show at five minutes to midnight Hmm. and it's just, just those ones that have that level to them where it's, here's something scary. But if you think even further, you're like, wow, that's even scarier. Those are, (laughs) those are the best ones. As I mentioned before, the obsolete man is one of my favorites. And that's one of the Burgess Meredith ones. Burgess Meredith is tied with Jack Klugman for having the most starring appearances in the Twilight Zone, both with four apiece. And incidentally, even though it's kind of uh, so classic, it's a bit cliched, but time enough at last, the episode with the glasses, the ending with the glasses, so to say. Oh, yes. I was thinking about that one and could not remember how to, how to, how to lead it in. But yes, that's that, that one. That one is awesome. I love how it ends with this wonderful pullback shot. You have Burgess Meredith as Henry Bemis standing outside with his broken glasses. And as the camera pulls back up and out, you see this, you know, destroyed landscape. And I don't know what kind of a budget they had for this show back then, but it is amazing that they were able to accomplish that back in, I think that episode was first season, Time Enough at Last. Yes, that would have been 1959 they did that. It just goes to show the amount of effort that they put into it. And also, um, the episode I shot an arrow into the air from season one became basically the the big inspiration for the twist of Planet of the Apes, which, by the way, Serling wrote the original screenplay for. I was just about to say that, yeah. Yeah, so that's it's pretty astounding to think of that. And when, it makes so much sense, though, when you think about the twist to Planet of the Apes, and it's of course Rod Serling wrote that. If you think back on it, you know, how is the audience not just sitting there saying, okay, when, when, when are we going to get it? What's going to be the big thing? <laughs> I know, it just made, when I read that for the first time, uh, which was only a couple of years ago, that Serling wrote Plan of the Apes, I was like, ah, that actually makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But my other, one of my other favorite episodes is uh, one that most people don't talk about. It's called A Game of Pool from season three. It stars Jack Klugman and Jonathan Winters. 
as two competing pool players who one of them is is dead and he was like a he was like a legend of his time Klugman's character is the living pool player who just wishes he had a chance to beat him and become you know the the greatest of all time and I won't say how it plays out because all these episodes are still worth watching it, it's, it's sad because you don't want to spoil these episodes because if you haven't seen them they're all still worth watching honestly getting somebody to watch some of the episodes that we we've, we've mentioned here for the first time, never having seen it, is up there with finding that rare person who doesn't know the twist in Empire Strikes Back. But if you if you don't know it, and yet you're able to introduce somebody to it, it's it's an amazing thing. But yeah, the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling will continue to live on, and we will have to see what happens with this uh, this reboot, and hope that it holds on to that legacy and pushes forward in a way that does the series legacy proud. Absolutely. Definitely wishing them the best, and I think they do have incredible talent behind it. I, Like I said, I, I think it's just it's going to be the atmosphere that decides whether or not it stands up. That pretty much concludes our first fan episode. So we'd like to hear your thoughts on The Twilight Zone and Serling. What are some of your favorite episodes? Uh, have you seen, as we mentioned before, Night Gallery? And are, are there any episodes of that that you would recommend for people to check out who haven't seen it? Do you think that Serling was overrated? Like, do you think The Twilight Zone is one of those shows that's overhyped? Because it does have the potential for that, for the way that people rave about it. Uh, and I'd like to find out if, you, if you're one of those people who thinks that, yeah, it's, it's good, but it doesn't live up to the what people say. Because those perspectives are perfectly welcome. Just because we're like, loving this show and raving about it, doesn't mean that there can't be dissenting opinions that we don't respect them. So please, let us know. Jenna Jacobus, thank you for joining me. Of course. Always a pleasure. All right. And to all of you, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this trip into a dimension of sight and sound and of mind. And we will see you next time on the Fan Expo Podcast.